That is some uncut raw blues coming at you from a former guest, Aiden Rayleigh, uh, who was the uh, modern day hobo. Episode number 94. Go check that out in the archives if you haven't already. He's uh, a very cool guy. Haven't heard from him for a while. He gave me a call. He was uh, sleeping in a tent in, I'm thinking, South Carolina, maybe. Thinking about settling down, uh, I don't remember if he'd met a woman or got offered a job. I don't remember exactly what it was, but uh, Aiden, if you're out there, give me a call or send me an email or something. Uh, I'd love to hear how you're doing, and I'm sure a lot of other people will uh, as well. I'll play something else at the end of this little rant by Aiden, uh, a much different feel to it. You can get your own uh, Aiden stuff at, um, hold on, I just clicked on it, a- Alexandrian Lanes, that's Alex, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-I-A-N, Lanes, L-A-N-E-S, dot, bandcamp, dot, com. That's where you can uh, download some of his music and um, also uh, throw some change his way uh, to help him on his journeys. Aiden's a very cool, very talented young man. So uh, any assistance that uh, comes his way is much appreciated by yours truly. That's a convoluted sentence, isn't it? Speaking of assistance, I just figured out that I have a way to go into the Amazon.com site 
and see the things that you people are buying through my affiliate link which I encourage you to do occasionally. And, uh, you know, I was getting a couple hundred bucks, 150 bucks, whatever, every month and didn't really know who it was coming from. I still don't know who it's coming from. But I can see um, what you're buying. And it's it's amazing. <laughs> Just as an example, um, somebody bought a motorcycle helmet through the site, which is very cool. Uh, high price, high ticket item. So a few bucks came our way. Axe Body Spray, Philips Sonicare Electric Toothbrush, a copy of the fantastic Vietnam novel uh, Dispatches by Michael Hare. Highly recommend it to anybody who wants to... Um, not only a great piece of, of you know Vietnam reportage, but the way he writes is very much uh, in the voice of the time of the late 60s, of Jimi Hendrix, of hippies, cool, pot-smoking kind of vibe. Uh, a copy of Vagabonding, which is a book I read many years ago uh, about just how to travel around the world, how to see things and, and you know live cheap. A copy of another book called Wife Share. The subtitle is Erotic Ideas for Arranging Her Seduction by Another Man. All right. All right, you go. And I just repeat again, I don't know. There's no way for me to see who ordered these things. I just see a list of things that were ordered through the Amazon affiliate link at chrisryanphd.com. Uh, someone bought a can of Fantastic brand refried beans. Uh, someone else got a Fleshlight Stamina Training Unit Male Masturbator, the Pink Lady uh, Edition. <laughs> <laughs> which also relates to uh, a, a, an archived episode with um, uh, Aubrey Marcus. Check that out. Aubrey and, uh, and Whitney are in an early episode, and Aubrey talks about how his stepfather invented the fleshlight. Um, someone else bought some Jungle Man all-natural deodorant. Jungle Man. I'm going to check that out. Uh, a bottle of Passion Premium Personal Lubricant. I don't know if that was the same person who bought the Fleshlight, but it may have been. Someone else got a Brother CX-6000 sewing machine. Good on you, whoever that was. Thank you. Hitachi Magic Wand with the antibacterial cleaning spray. Someone got an X-80 American Flag Fanny Pack. I wonder if that was Joe Rogan. He'd look great with an American Flag Fanny Pack, wouldn't he? Um, someone got a magnetic screen door. I didn't know you could even buy screen doors at Amazon, but I guess you can. And last but not least, thank you to the person who got the Hello Kitty giant sticker activity book. Uh, that's just amazing. So thank you to everybody who ordered stuff. And that's just a small percentage of the things that people order through that uh, Amazon affiliate link. You know, it's not a lot. Uh, each of these orders, we get 2 3 4%, whatever it is. So it's not a lot, but it adds up, and it's, uh, it's great support for the podcast. Additionally, if you want to support the podcast in a more sort of direct manner, there's fundwhatyoulove.com. Uh, where you can make a monthly donation. It can be a buck a month. It can be five bucks a month. It can be whatever you want. And that's a recurring donation. So you just do it once and then it happens monthly. And I promise if I stop doing the podcast, I will stop accepting those payments. So you don't have to worry about forgetting about it and being charged for the rest of your life. Um, 
And uh, other ways to uh, support the podcast are through the donation buttons. If you want to just do a one-time donation at uh, chrisryanphd.com, click on Tangentially Speaking. You'll see it all there on the right margin. You've got a, I set up a donation button through Squarespace that hosts the web page. And then uh, someone, a web developer, wrote to me and said, eh, I'd prefer PayPal. It's easier with PayPal. So I set up a PayPal button as well. So either one that works for you, they are there at uh, chrisryanphd.com. So I was thinking about uh, the last couple of weeks. I talked about some reasons that I decided not to have kids. Somebody asked two or three episodes back. Somebody sent me an email asking me to expound upon that. And I did, and then I you know, realized I'd forgotten to mention some reasons, so I got back to it last week. And now this week, it occurred to me, I, I forgot to mention another reason. I've got so many damn reasons not to have kids, I can't keep track of them all, which I guess tells you all you need to know. But I, I kind of feel like honesty requires that I, I talk about this a little bit, because a big reason I don't have kids... well. There are two ways to frame this. One is I think a lot of people have kids because they feel that their own parents could have done a better job. And um, sometimes that's putting it very lightly. And so they want to they want to give a kid what they themselves didn't get, whether it's unconditional love or financial security or um <clears throat> Uh, a stable, a stable marriage, you know, of the parents, what, whatever it is, a lot of times I, I think that people are motivated by that sort of thing. You know, I'm going to give my kids what, what I wasn't given. And that can be a, that can be a beautiful thing, um, important and, and, uh, definitely worthwhile. I didn't feel motivated by that because my parents did a fantastic job. Uh, they were, they were, um, unconditionally loving as I think I talked about in one of the talking out my ass episodes. Um, they always made sure that my sister and I knew that no matter how bad we fucked up, they would never not love us. Um, and so that, you know, I think if a kid has that, that, um, creates a base, a solid emotional psychological base, um, and nothing can take that away. And conversely, I think if a kid grows up without that, nothing can replace it. And I think a lot of people we see desperately chasing money and fame and power and whatever, what they're trying to do is compensate for um, that deep inner sense of in, inadequacy. And, um, so anyway, that, that, uh, is something that I'd never had to worry about. And so that sort of gave rise to another thing, which is that then I, I felt free to do all sorts of crazy shit and, um, you know, hitchhike across North America a few times and take risks, um, that if I had a kid who took those risks, I don't think I could fucking take it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that on the one side, I wasn't motivated to have kids by feeling that there was something I had to correct, you know, in the world. 
And on the other side, I, I didn't want to have kids because I honestly don't think I have the courage that a parent requires in order to let a kid be who she or he is um, because that involves risk. Um, you know, a very small example, a friend of mine, oh, you know him, uh, Murphy, the, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, is camping alone this weekend. His father, he asked his parents if it was cool and they're like, okay, you know. It's a sort of a coming-of-age ritual. He's out there in the woods by himself for a couple of nights. Now, I think that's fucking fantastic. I think it's it's necessary. It's wonderful. It's uh, everything good. And I would probably be terrified if I were his parent, as I'm sure his parents are. Um, now, they drive him out there. They drop him off. They come pick him up. He's got a cell phone. You know, it's not... They're not dropping them off on, you know, Shark Island or something. But, you know, I think about this on deeper levels. I did, I took heroin. I overdosed on heroin. Um, I'll tell that story someday uh, when I get to it on the Toma podcast. I, I, I traveled across borders with enough drugs to put me in prison for the rest of my life many times. And I'm not bragging. I'm admitting how fucking stupid I am and was. And uh, and as a parent, you have this incredible vulnerability to the decisions, to the, to the repercussions of the decisions that your kids make. And yet you have virtually no control over those decisions, right? If I had been... Uh, busted and you know sentenced to 50 years in a Thai prison that would have fucked up my parents lives intensely and yet they really had no control over any of the dumbass decisions I was making that could very easily have led to that that's a vulnerability that honestly I don't have the courage to carry and then we're not even talking about what if your kid is born disabled in some way um, or gets hit by a car or falls off a fucking cliff or gets bit by a snake or, you know, all the terrible things that can happen. It's There's this open door to tragedy that, you know, you just you can't close it. You can't can't ever cut yourself off from that if you're a parent. And um, so congratulations to parents. Congratulations to those of you who are doing that. Um, you have my absolute respect because I couldn't do it and decided not to do it. And so uh, that's the end of that. I don't want to talk about not having kids anymore because it gets depressing. But <laughs> not, not to me, but uh, maybe to some of you. But uh, hey, hats off. To all the parents out there. And if you're a kid, think about your parents. Think about the shit you put them through. Think about the fear and the vulnerability and the, um, the, the terrifying lack of control over their own lives that your existence uh, sentences them to and uh, cut them a break. All right. Work continues apace on Civilized to Death. Thank you for everybody's ordering those T-shirts. 
uh, too late to back out now, right? If all those t-shirts are out there in the world, uh, I'm, I hope to finish it midsummer, month, two months from now. I'm, I'm trying to bust out on it and it's going pretty well. Uh, Hey, check out Mandy's podcast. Those of you who remember Mandy was on the pod on this podcast a while back. She's got her own podcast now called philosophy of health. You can find it at uh, philosophyofhealth.org. She talks to uh, various people in alternative uh, medicine and philosophy. And um, as you may remember, Mandy uh, has got a pretty serious debilitating in, in, um, illness that she's recovering from uh, with the help of uh, alternative approaches, including um, some of our sacred plant friends. So check her out, philosophyofhealth.org. She's got some very interesting things going on over there. I guess now that we're uh, almost 17 minutes into this thing, I should tell you who this week's guest is, Julie. Julie Holland is an old friend of mine I've known since uh, at least 1999. I remember first meeting her at the uh, World MDMA Conference in Israel that was uh, sponsored by MAPS. Rick Doblin invited me along, another former guest on the podcast. Check out the archives. Um, anyway, Julie and her husband, I think he was her boyfriend at that point, but in any case, uh, they were there together, and I remember her from that. And then, I don't know, we kept in touch, and I ran into her. I came visit her in New York once or twice over the years. And anyway, Julie is a very interesting person. She's a, a psychiatrist, specializes in psychopharmacology, meaning the, the drugs that people use, and but not just the psychiatric drugs, but also sacred plant. She's uh, edited a book about um, MDMA, uh, and uh, which we talk about in the podcast. And she also has a book about uh, marijuana, the pot book, I think it's called. Um, anyway, we talk about those. And she's just published a book a couple months ago called Moody Bitches, which is a very interesting look at uh, women and the variability of women's um, mental, psychological, emotional states. And essentially, Julie's argument is there's nothing sick about that. There's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't need to be medicalized. So uh, let's uh, celebrate the variability of women for what it is and appreciate it instead of whining about it. So that's a very, uh, I think, is a very topical and powerful perspective on these things. So anyway, that's Julie. I hope you enjoy this podcast. She's super smart. There were some technical issues. We did it over Skype and we kept getting cut off. So I edited out all the, you know, hey, what just happened? Do you hear that buzzing sound? All that that kind of stuff. So if you hear, if there's a little jump, that's probably what it is. Um, I think I, I managed to edit out all the weirdness. Um, so enjoy the podcast. I hope you, uh, check out Aiden Raley in the, uh, in the archives and I'll play you out with another song by Aiden. That first song, by the way, was Black Pines. I think I mentioned that. The second song I'm going to play very, very brief, um, instrumental guitar piece is called Afternoon Light by Aiden Raley. Thank you. 
speaking with Dr. Julie Holland, all the way from New York City. Are you in New York or are you upstate? I am upstate today. Uh, I will be in the city later this week. That explains your relaxed tone of voice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would I would be only be able to give you about five minutes if I were in the city in my office. Oh, uh, but they'd be five New York minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very yeah. intense. It's like, like dog years. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Julie is a psychiatrist specializing in psychopharmacology, so we're going to have a lot to talk about today, and the author of uh, most recently Moody Bitches, which I saw in the Austin airport prominently displayed. Yeah, it's been in a bunch of airports. Yeah, that's fantastic. Were you worried that you were going to have problems with the word bitches on the title there? So... One of the most interesting things that's happened is that it turns out that there are two bad words in my title. The The word that everyone's freaking out about and taking offense at isn't bitches. It's moody. Uh-huh. Um, I had no idea that people would be so resistant to this idea of feeling their feelings and being emotionally expressive and what that means. So it's been a real learning curve for me. Um you know, I interview a lot like magazines or newspapers and a lot of a lot of women journalists and they're always asking me about like but you know, so you're suggesting that we like feel, you know, bad or feel anxious or feel sad or feel angry and I was like, Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, is this is this so crazy? Right. I, yeah, it's not so much you're suggesting they should as you're suggesting that they do and we all do. You and know? that it's not, it's not necessarily pathology that needs to be medicated away. I mean, right. I really think, you know, I, I think that for, for centuries, men were getting messages that they needed to be less emotional, less emotionally expressive, and, you know, man up, and, you know, don't be a pussy, and, you know, big boys don't cry. Like, boys have been getting these messages for a very long time, and I'm not saying that they're healthy, but that is the reality. The thing that's kind of freaking me out now is that women are getting these messages, especially in the workplace. But in general, uh, and certainly by big pharma, women are getting messages that they need to tamp down their emotionality and their sort of the you know feminine aspects of who they are. Um, I mean, it's easier to talk in terms of sort of yin and yang because it's I mean, obviously every man and every woman has their own individualized level of uh, you know, empathy or how emotionally expressive they may be. Um, but you know, the messages that, that men have been receiving now women are receiving and it makes me nervous. And I feel I, what the thing I'm worried about is that all these women on psych meds, you know, one out of four women now in America are taking some sort of psychiatric medication. Um, and that's not including sleeping pills. The numbers actually get higher when you include sleeping pills. So just, you know, antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, and antipsychotics. Um, and they're getting a lot of messages from Big Pharma and from these other women who are on meds um, that, you know, being emotionally expressive is is sort of pathology, that they, these are symptoms that need to be medicated away, that they're not healthy. And I'm worried that it's starting to create a new normal, that there's so many women now who are on antidepressants, at least I know in New York City this is the case, that, you know, I have patients coming to me now 
saying, you know, that all their friends are on meds and they want to know more about meds. And it never used to be like that. I mean, I've been practicing now for 20 years. And 20 years ago, people would come to me and say, you know, I can't get out of bed or I'm depressed, or I'm crying all the time or I can't sleep. You know, what's the matter? What can I do? And now people are coming to me just wanting to know what's the difference between Wellbutrin and Effexor? And, you know, her friend's on Paxil, but she's got another friend who's taking Abilify. And what's the difference? And, you know, what do I need to know? Which medicine should I take? Not what's wrong with me? Do I need a medicine? But which medicine should I take? And that is pretty terrifying to me. And it's relatively new. And it shows no signs of of getting less intense as kids now who are on all sorts of uh, medications in school. I don't remember the statistics, but it's it's massive numbers of particularly young boys who are taking right. – uh, what are they taking for Ritalin and stuff so like that? Right, and Adderall. I mean, they're taking stimulants. But, you know, the problem now is that some parents feel like when they send their kids in to take the SATs, the kids who aren't medicated are at a disadvantage because there's so many people who are taking ADD meds for testing. And, you know, it's this idea of a new normal where the more the boys are medicated, it, it, it literally, you know, creates sort of a new normal in terms of uh, how much attention they can pay or how much focus or concentration they can have during the test so that the, the boys who aren't on Ritalin or Adderall are at a disadvantage. So, um, and it's a little bit like, you know, breast implants with cosmetic surgery where, you know, the more, the more women who are having larger breasts than the women who have smaller breasts feel like there's something wrong with them and there's some sort of pathology because it's creating a new normal. Um, and I'm yeah. worried about this is sort of cosmetic psychopharmacology. So it's a canary in the coal mine situation. I mean, I'm in Manhattan. I'm seeing things that I'm sure middle America is not yet seeing, but I'm definitely concerned with the trend. And you know, 80% of these psych meds are written by internists and GPs. They're not written by psychiatrists. So they're very quick appointments. Um, they're not, the doctors aren't necessarily spending an hour talking about psych history and family history and all the things that go into whether you need medicines or not. You know, they're handing over prescriptions and having the patient come back in three months or six months for refills. They're not necessarily doing any psychotherapy or making sure their patients get psychotherapy. So it's a pretty worrisome trend. Do you see it as as part of an overall cultural trend? Um, you know, you, you related it to breast implants, but we could talk about it in so many, we could frame it in so many ways, right? I mean, everything now is about hacking, biohacking, optimal performance. You know, every it seems yeah. that there's this merging. Now, the, of course, my framing is I'm in the midst of writing this book, so I see everything in terms of the way I'm framing the book. But it feels to me that there's a, sort of a, a movement away from biological humanness to some sort of techno right technological human right it's it's Absolutely. it's right. really strange it's a one of the main messages of moody bitches is this idea that the further away we get from what's natural for us as social primates the further we get from nature, the further, uh, the you know, the, the more we go towards the synthetic, um, the more miserable we are and the sicker we are, certainly psychiatrically sicker. And I would I would say, you know, physiologically health wise, I think we're getting sicker, too. So um, what's what's driving this migration? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> I don't know what's. What's driving the migration away from nature is an excellent question. I mean, I think, you know, technology, I mean, I don't, I'm not here to diss technology, but um, I do sort of have issues with how much time everybody is spending, you know, hunched over a screen. I mean, it's 
obviously, I mean, everyone's talking about how ridiculous it is, how people are completely addicted to their cell phones and their iPads. Um, but, you know, anytime you're sitting in front of a glowing screen, you're not moving your body, you're not out in nature. Um, so yeah. I think that that's a big problem. And, I, you know, I'm, luckily, I think people are talking quite a bit now about what, what constitutes a healthy diet and what makes more sense for us. Because I, there's no question that all the processed food is causing psychiatric complaints. I mean, one of the things I came across in my research of Moody Bitches is this connection between inflammation and depression, inflammation and anxiety, inflammation and insomnia, um, that you know, the foods that we're eating and the, the lack of sleep and the lack of exercise, all these things that we're doing um, are creating this sort of chronic low-level inflammation, which is making our psychiatric symptoms worse. So one of the things that you can do instead of taking psychiatric medications is to adopt sort of an anti-inflammatory lifestyle and an anti-inflammatory diet and, you know, keep stress down, go out, be in nature, get some sun, make sure you're getting plenty of sleep. I mean, there's all these sort of very basic, like, duh, you know, we should sleep more and eat healthy foods. But um, in terms of psychiatric complaints, these things really matter. Yeah. You're, you're uh, an unusual person like my wife. You're a psychiatrist who is a bit of a, what, what would the word be, a pharmacological Luddite in some sense? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. you know, I still spend, you know, one or two days a week sitting in my office prescribing for people. But I'm, I am definitely spending a lot more time. I mean, I've always been like a tremendous nudge about cardio. I'm always bugging my patients to move their bodies. Um, but I, I've become sort of more of a, of a nudge about things like anti-inflammatory diet and, and probiotics and, you know, increasing bacterial diversity and omega-3 fatty acids and, um, and cannabis too. I honestly think that there's a place, you know, I mean, it's a great anti-inflammatory medicine. Um, and it's often a healthier choice than alcohol or cigarettes. So, you know, when I think about sort of a, a, a global anti-inflammatory regimen, um, I include cannabis. And I talk quite a bit about, about the endocannabinoid system in Moody Bitches. I think that um, a lot of people still don't really know that e even if you've never smoked a joint, you still have cannabis molecules coursing through your body all the time. And... Um, that cannabinoids help to sort of stabilize the stress response and immune responses, um, and that cannabis and many other cannabinoids are really potent anti-inflammatory molecules. So, you know, there's a fair bit of teaching in Moody Bitches. But, you know, to answer your question about what's driving us away from nature, that is really a harder – I don't know the answer. I mean, I'm, I would like to kind of throw that question back to you and say, what, what, do, you, what do you see going on as – you know, I see that we're definitely turning away from nature and we're getting more synthetic and less natural. And I, I, I don't know if blaming technology and blaming big pharma is sort of too easy. Yeah, well, that that's the the chapter or the section of the book I'm working on right now is uh, tentatively called Leviathan. And it's about uh, it's it's about emergent intelligence um and so i'm sort of arguing that there's almost like a hive mind that happens with uh when you get a certain number of human beings in a network that it um there's an emergent super organism mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, you're talking about um, the microbiome, for example, right? Every, every, you know, we agree to talk about you as if you were a, a single entity and I'm a single entity. And yet, you know, we both know that we contain millions of microbes that don't even share our DNA without right. which we would cease to exist. So right. the idea that you are a single entity and I'm a single entity is itself a fiction that we're just sort of agreeing to agree on. Because when you go to a, a smaller scale, you find all these microbes. Well, when you go to a larger scale, I think you also find that we combine into this super organism. And I feel like the super, I mean, this is a very, uh, you know, back of the envelope explanation. But I think the, the super organism has its own agenda. And, uh, you know, on an institutional level, things are happening that have, at best, an arbitrary relationship to our interests. And so I feel like we're, we're the equivalent of salmon who have, you know, for tens of thousands of years as hunter-gatherers, we were swimming freely in the oceans. And now, since agriculture, we've schooled. Yeah, And now none of us individually really knows what the fuck is going on or has any control over it. And I'm including, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Barack Obama and anyone else. They, they're they as helpless in this uh, sort of mass uh, movement as, as the rest of us are. Yeah. So I see this as part of it. There, There's something happening. There's some massive migration that's happening away from the biological toward the technological. Right. And some people think that's wonderful, right? The, the singularity and we're going to live forever and yada, yada, yada. But I think that when we live forever, we will no longer be us. We'll, we'll, we won't be right. human beings anymore. And we most of us aren't human beings anymore. Let's face it. We're... You know, we are human beings are wolves and we are poodles, you know, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> I mean, that's where we are. And, and what I'm trying to argue in the book is, uh, you know, like, no, we're never going to go back to hunter gatherer lives, but we're, right. we're going to spend the rest of our lives in this artificial environment, uh, you know, synthetic world that we've created a zoo, but fuck of a lot better to be in the San Diego Zoo than the Calcutta Zoo. Right. You know? So that's that's uh, that's sort True. of my take on this. Now nobody's going to buy my book because they just heard that. <laughs> I think they'll still buy. I'll, I'll buy your book. You'll buy the book. Um, speaking of books, just so people know, you, you know, you've got you've got a very interesting background. You're you've edited two books. One on uh, called the Pot Book, and the other Ecstasy: The Complete Guide, which I think I translated a chapter in. As a matter of fact. Uh, Jose Carlos Busso's tra- chapter and that. Oh, thank you for doing that. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't even know. My oh, God. I'm like, I hope you're in the acknowledgement. <laughs> Did I know that? <laughs> I, I think in the chapter it's noted I that so. I translated or something. Um, so yeah, so the the ecstasy book and the pop book are, are these two nonprofit books um, that have a lot of other authors and people from around the world, you know, experts on cannabis or experts on MDMA. Um, but all the proceeds for those books fund clinical research into MDMA or cannabis. Right. And you've been um, associated with MAPS for a long time. I have for, you know, it's actually 30 years now that I've known Rick Doblin. And you and um, I met at that ecstasy conference in Israel. Do you remember? Except 
Except I feel like we knew each other before then, or we knew of each other before then. Did well, we may have known of each other, but I think that was when I met you. Yeah, the first time, and that was probably like ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, that and was the, the Ecstasy book came out in two thousand one. Right, and then the only other book I've, I've done is this uh, a memoir of the nine years I spent working um, Saturday night and Sunday night at Bellevue Hospital running the psychiatric emergency room. So I wrote this memoir called Weekends at Bellevue: Nine Years on the Night Shift at the Psych ER. I enjoyed um, that a lot. That was good. Which I loved writing. That was that was just the easiest book in the world to write. I mean, it was just like telling stories. I mean, every, every single thing in that book is true. It all happened, and there were, it was all from notes that I had kept while I was there. So it was really um, fun to put that together and to sort of create a narrative arc out of out of nine years of my life. Um, the edited books are a little trickier because I can write my part, but then I have to kind of nudge and bug everybody to get their parts in, which is really a pain. Because it's not like, you know, you're paying them anything or, you know, there's a deadline, but there's no real consequences if they miss it. So it's like shoddy parenting. Yeah. <laughs> trying trying to get people to turn in their their chapters. Yeah. How are you with deadlines? Um, I'm great. I need deadlines. It's I I'm great if I have a deadline. I prioritize and I really get it done. If I don't have a deadline is where I get in trouble. You're a, you're a type A, aren't you? Um, yeah. Well, I'm what I, I, what's called a type C, which is a type A pretending to be a type B. (laughs) 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 I'm like, it's cool. It's all mellow. But underneath, I'm like, what does this do? What am I doing? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, there are very few people who get through medical school who don't have some sort of, you know, type A qualities, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I've got fairly good um, discipline, but I, you know, I mean, my my sort of catchphrase was always like moderation in all things, including moderation. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm all for being middle of the road, but every once in a while, you gotta kick out the jams and you know be a little irresponsible. Yeah. But um, but I get I get right back on track of whatever it is I'm doing. Yeah. And you know, the times that I am, you know, say altering my consciousness or exploring, I still end up like writing things down because I've got ideas for articles or, you know, books to write or something. So, um, I end up being pretty industrious even when I'm supposedly (laughs) trying to slack off. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when Casilda and I got together, she was working like 70 hours a week or something. And, and our, our deal was, and you know what it's like, she was working in a hospital. She had a private practice. She was a mother, you know, she was doing all this shit and we, the deal, and I was like working 12 hours a week, and, you know, living with a bunch of fashion models. And, and I was going to help her relax more. And, um, you know, then she moved to Barcelona. And I said, okay, you don't work for a year. You just, t- you know, take it easy. Go to the gym. You know, take pottery classes or whatever the hell you want to do. And I'll I'll pay the bills. I'll take care of everything. And then next thing I know, she's entered this competition. And she's, you know, in competing to be the fittest woman in Catalonia. And just... <laughs> Great. In her spare time, she's going to be like running and lifting. Exactly. She's in like a decathlon and then she won and she's on television oh, and she, she's got this big check, you know, like she's standing there next to this famous Spanish. Person. And it's like, that is not what I meant. That's not how you relax, you know? <laughs> right. But people like you, you know, you doctors, you like, oh, okay, I'm going to relax. I'll be the best. I'll be the most relaxed. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I mean I think my husband Jeremy Wolf would attest um that I I am pretty good at at being a slug and you know like um 
when I, when I handed in Moody Bitches, I just kind of started laying around and watching TV shows on my computer. And um, mm. I, have, I have an interesting story about how procrastination can make you a ton of money. Oh, um, yeah. I was supposed to be working on a Moody Bitches proposal, but there was no clear end date. It was very nebulous, and I was just kind of putzing around working on it. And then I wasn't really working on it for all. And I, was, and I started watching this TV show, Lost, which has got like six or seven seasons, 23 episodes a season, right? So I'm spending way too much time sort of compulsively watching episode after episode. Um, and it took months and it was really driving Jeremy crazy because I wasn't being productive. And then my book agent got in touch with me and she's like, I don't know how far along you are in that proposal, but I have something really serious to discuss with you. And she told me she's not going to be an agent anymore. She's going to school to study being an acupuncturist. So all of a sudden I have like a half finished proposal and nobody who's interested. So I watched the rest of Lost, which, by the way, was like a completely disappointing ending. Yeah, and then yeah. and then I had to fish around for a new agent, but I ended up getting this really serious, high-powered agent um, who got me a really strong book deal for Moody Bitches, and also a lot of like foreign translations. I mean, she's worked very hard on this. Um, but you know, if I had if I hadn't been screwing around, I probably would have sold one more book with Kirsten before I switched over to my new agent. So. This was a this was one of those rare stories where just like lying around <laughs> on your duff for months on end yeah. made me a lot more money um, and you know set me up a lot better. So yeah, and also I, I mean I'm a you never know to what extent you're just sort of justifying things, but I feel like Sex at Dawn came out at the right moment, and I had been intending to write it for years before I ever got around to it. And I feel like if I had written, if I had published it three or four years before, I don't know if it would have hit the the nerve it hit. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so I kind of feel like there is there there is something organic that has to be respected in these things. You know, it's uh, I don't know. I may, and as I say, I may just be justifying my own laziness, but I kind of feel like you know I'm way behind schedule on the book I'm writing now, but I. Some part of me thinks, you know what, it'll it'll be done when it's done, and that'll be right. the right moment, and you know, just go with it. So, I don't well, know. It is, you know, it is important to sort of have the you know finger on the pulse and what the zeitgeist is if you're going to come out with something. I mean, it's hard to time though because even if you hand in a book, it doesn't come out for almost a year. You know, this well, maybe a year is a little. You know, between the editing and the you know printing and everything, you can't yeah. really get it out that quickly. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, you know, you get lucky and you and you I mean, I definitely, you know, Sex of Dawn was a really important book for me to read. And, um, you know, I I I referenced it heavily in Moody Bitches. I mean, it's it comes up quite a bit in the in the notes section of Moody Bitches. So it was, I, you know, I've I speak quite a bit about monogamy um, and, you know, the sort of challenges of maintaining a, a long term relationship. Um, so I, I pulled from sex at Dom for the, for the sort of marriage chapter and for the sex chapter. And I talk about libido quite a bit throughout Moody Bitches and often in terms of novelty. Um, yeah, well, it, know, it fits into the argument you're making, right? Cause a lot of the argument you're making in Moody Bitches is that the, the expectations of the, the culture we live in are unrealistic and are, are, are destructive to us. Right. 
So, yeah, I mean, it fits perfectly into your argument. Have you, you we talked about maps, and you've, you've known Andrew Weil for a long time, probably longer than I have. Um, and you've, you're in this world of people who are both uh, highly respected in the medical world, and yet a lot of what you've published and, and spoken about publicly is kind of uh, subversive to that world. Have you yes. had have you had problems around <laughs> yes, that? Yes, it's subversive. Uh, no, only pleasure. <laughs> um, no problems at all. <laughs> really? Because well, you've I, been on like Oprah and shit, right? I one little problem. I mean, I've I've been doing I, I've been doing TV since the mid '80s. So I've at this point, I pretty much feel like I've been on a you know a ton of different TV shows and and networks. Um, I've been on the Today Show twenty seven times, and um, you know just a lot of CNN and talk shows, whatever, uh, Dr. Oz. Um, where am I going with this? So, yes, yeah, some things are subversive. I mean, drugs are subversive, right? I, you know, I my first book was about, you know, using MDMA um, in therapy and how even though it's a Schedule One drug, it really does have uh, clinical value and potential. And, um, and, you know, the pop book, uh, a little less subversive, I think. I mean, it's certainly more uniformly accepted that this is an ancient medicinal plant that has definite medicinal value. But um, some of the things I talk about in Moody Bitches are definitely pretty subversive. But, you know, what's what's nice for me is that I am a free agent at this point. I don't work at Bellevue anymore. And even though I was on the faculty, NYU School of Medicine for about a dozen years, I'm not on the faculty anymore. I don't answer to anybody. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a boss. I have a private practice and I'm not affiliated any longer with any university. So, Nobody can really give me shit for what I say on TV, so I speak my mind. You know, I don't have anyone to answer to except, you know, my husband if I come back from the studio and, you know, didn't do my best. Um, but that's really liberating for me. So I, I'm allowed to be subversive and I, I enjoy that. You know, I just think um, people really resonate with authenticity. So, you know, the most important thing to me is that I, is that I speak my truth, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Have you found it interfering in your private practice at all that you're such a public figure that patients come in knowing who you are and knowing things about your life? Traditionally, I have therapists send me patients who, you know, somebody who's been in therapy a while and the therapist is like, I really think they may need meds. I mean, that's the best patient for me because mm. it's somebody who's really already doing the work and, you know, knows to show up on time and pay their bills and, you know, they're a good patient. Um, so being in the spotlight, I don't uh, like, for instance, I was on the doctors um, and they did an episode about MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder. I know that you were on the doctors as well. So anyway, so after after I'm on the doctors, I will get a ton of phone calls and emails, um, people who want more information or they want to see me or they want to, you know, they want to they want me to call them and talk to them about their problems. And, you know, I can't I just I mean, it's it's an untenable amount of people that I, I can't possibly get back to them all. Um so I don't necessarily make use of the fact that, you know, I'm I'm on TV or I'm in a magazine or a TV. You know, I don't pick up patients who call me in that situation. I really mm. try to just stay with what I know works for me. Right. Um, but you know, the thing that I was really uptight about with Moody Bitches is that I come down pretty hard against meds for right. a good chunk of Moody Bitches. But in my life and in my work, I prescribe for a living and that's what I do. People come to me with complaints and symptoms and I give them meds. And then we talk about 
what it would take to get them off the meds. But I do pretty much gratify the people who come in and want meds. The thing I was worried about writing Moody Bitches is that I come down pretty hard against this idea of cosmetic psychopharm, this, you know, the sort of unnecessary medications that I'm afraid too many people are taking. Um, but the, the, the line I need to walk is that in my office and in my work, I am prescribing for people. And what I was worried about is that my patients are going to read moody bitches and then, you know, email me and call me and be like, you know, why am I on these medicines? You have to get me off these medicines. What are you doing? Because, you know, ideally, if everybody reads and embraces the message of moody bitches, I put myself out of business and I'm, I would be fine with that. But, you know, what I try to do is a little bit of a bait and switch when somebody comes in and they want meds is I tend, I tend to give them meds and gratify, you know, their request. I mean, they, by the time somebody gets to me, they really are having pretty serious symptoms and complaints and they do need some help. Um, so I will do very low dose antidepressants, um, or low dose anti-anxiety meds or sleeping pills or something so that they feel like I am listening to them and giving them what they're asking for. But then once they're in this sort of environment, um, that's when we do a lot of work to, to try to figure out better ways than the meds to get to get my patients feeling better. Um, and that tends to be really, you know, respecting the biology and being more natural. Yeah. Um, you know, just, and being healthier. And, you know, there, there's obviously a big overlap with how well you take care of your body and how well your brain is functioning. And one of the biggest issues in, in New York City um, is a couple of things. I mean, people, no one is sleeping enough. I have so many patients coming to me who are sleeping six hours, maybe seven hours, but all the current research is really that you need between eight and nine hours. So this is one of the things that I'm really focused on is getting people to sleep a lot more. And then the second thing is to get outside. You know, 90% of the time people are indoors and everybody's got these low vitamin D levels. They're all surprised, you know, when their doctor tells them their vitamin D levels are low and you know, I'm not surprised because like when's the last time you were outside and especially in New York City where there's just not much sun to be had. I mean, the buildings really do block off a tremendous amount of sunlight. Yeah. So not getting enough light, not getting enough sleep. I mean, these are very basic things with a circadian rhythm that, you know, when you are getting enough sunshine, you are getting enough sleep, your brain works a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get this argument from people all the time. You know, uh, I talk about evolutionary remedies for things or, or yeah. explanations. Everybody says, oh, but we've been, you know, in civilized, civilized world for so long. We've adapted to this. It's ridiculous going back 50,000 years. That's so silly. It's like, well, look around you. Yeah, but when they say adapted, they're really kind of using the wrong word. I imagine you and I would agree that there haven't been very, you know, major changes or adaptations to our physiology in, what, 10,000 years at least? Yeah. Yeah. Did you read Marlene Zook's uh, Paleo Fantasy? No, but it's like, it's on my to-do list. It's like, it's, it's on a list of books I need to read. So. Yeah. Well, she, yeah, you know, not, not yet. <laughs> yeah. That's a very uh, sort of elaborate articulation of, of what we're talking about. But when people make that argument, they always turn to things like, well, I mean, just look at the fact that we've, you know, evolved to, um, to digest lactase, right? Yeah. That, that's always their, 
But who gives a shit? First of all, that's more of an evolution of our gut biome than it it's is. bacteria. Yeah. Right. It's, not, it's not necessarily our bodies. Right? right. And then, you know, and it has nothing to do with things like you're talking about sleep, need for sleep, need for sunlight, vitamin D, you know, all these very basic biological needs that we have that affect our health very right. deeply. And so the fact that, you know, some white people in Northern Europe manage to, to digest cow milk doesn't even mean that cow milk is good for us. It just means we've learned to digest it or, or our bodies have adapted in some way. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a very weak argument. But when you're arguing against the conventional wisdom, even the weakest argument appears to be overwhelming to most people. <laughs> right. Well, you know. Look, in terms of light and dark, it's, I mean, it's something so basic, but you see disruptions in circadian rhythms with depression, with seasonal depression, with manic depression. You know, there's definitely something to this idea that we need a lot of dark and a lot of light. And the problem now is that we've got a lot of light at night where, you know, you come home and it's seven, eight, nine o'clock at night and all your lights are on and your TV is on and your computer is in your face. There's all this kind of glowing screens tell your brain that it's two o'clock in the afternoon, basically. And, you know, people wonder why they have trouble falling asleep, um, but they're not in the dark, you know, and their brains are being really hyper-stimulated by computers. So I really encourage my patients to try to unplug and, you know, dim, first of all, put down your fucking phone and close your laptop and, you know, read a book or talk or breathe or just be in your body or stretch or play music. I mean, you know, there are things that you can do that don't involve a glowing screen and to start doing those at like nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night and, and dim the lights and then sleep in a dark room, not with your computer in your bed, you know, yeah. um, that can already go a, a, a really long way to helping with attention deficit disorder and depression and anxiety. And it's like so simple and basic. You're you're a mother. You have two sons, is that right? I have a 15-year-old daughter and 11-year-old son. Okay, so you you see both sides of it. So as a mother, what are you feeling? Are they do you feel like your kids are evolving or adapting into a type of of being that you don't recognize in some ways? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the thing the thing that's always sort of upsetting for me is that Whenever there's downtime, the kids will immediately get on a screen. They will either get on their phones or or a laptop or a TV or something. And, you know, Jeremy and I are constantly trying to get them to go outside and play or come out with us. And, you know, like we have to plan family outings or go for a walk in the woods or go down to the lake because if we don't, then they will just be in front of the screens. Um, and I, I like I honestly worry about this kind of stoop neck posture, you know, where they're yeah. all kind of hunched over. One of the key messages of Moody Bitches is this idea that women are naturally cyclical and dynamic and that because of the fertility cycle, there are times um, in a woman's cycle where she may be more sensitive or more emotionally expressive um, and that that's natural and that's normal. Um, and you know, having, having like a moody little bitch <laughs> for a daughter sometimes and, um, keeping track of my cycle, keeping track of her cycle. Um, you know, that's, that's one way where there's sort of an interaction of parenting and this book for me. Um, you know, Jeremy, my husband also, uh, has sort of learned to know where we are in our cycles and that that's very valuable information for him. 
<laughs> That's funny. I was talking to a woman the other night about that, and she said that, you know, uh, when her husband says, you know, well, I think you're just being this way because you're ovulating or you're it enrages her. Right. And then two days later, she realizes he was right. And then she apologizes. Yeah. And it like, it, it, but it, what is it that? Why is it enraging is a really good question. Well, and the um, corollary to that is why is it so difficult for women to like take that lesson on board? You know what I mean? It seems like every month is absolutely the first time again. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, it was definitely my, uh, you know, my fervent prayer to really convey that kind of information in, in Moody Bitches. And I, you know, there's a chapter very early on where I talk about sort of what to expect throughout your cycle. Although I would also say that more and more women now, you know, they're taking antidepressants and they're taking oral contraceptives. Oh, yeah. So they don't cycle. They are flatlined. Um, and that, I mean, this is the new normal that I'm sort of worried about. I mean, especially in terms of libido. I have so many women coming to my office complaining that they're not horny. And it's like, well, you know, you're taking an antidepressant, which cuts your libido and cuts your sexual response and makes it very difficult to climax or really, for some meds, feel any sexual pleasure. And then you're taking oral contraceptives, which prevent you from ovulating so you don't have that sort of naturally horny time mid-cycle and also the longer you're on oral contraceptives the lower your free testosterone is so you're getting less horny every year that you're on the pill so and i think a lot of women don't know this and are you know surprised to learn this and it's something you know whenever i am you know interviewed or talking about moody bitches um i I try to talk about libido and desire because it's such a big deal in in women today and uh, we don't and we don't have the boner pills that you guys have. I mean, there's 24 FDA approved prosexual drugs for men and there's zero for women. So but I'm not you know, sure we don't have recourse that you guys have in this department. True. But but, you know, recourse. The thing about the boner pills is they give you a boner, but they don't they don't make you horny. Right. Right. So, you know, that's no different from, you know, putting some using some lube and opening your legs. You know, it's like, right. OK, we can do it fine. Right. But right. It, it's not about desire. It's about, you know, some sort of purely physical functioning. Yeah. And again, I think this is part of that migration away from humanness, you know, right. and towards some sort of machine, you know, merging of machines that, you know, there's, there's all this stuff with people, you know, sex dolls. And I mean, it's just right. the well, online even porn, just, even just porn. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, it's so, um, there's such a plethora of, of porn available on your computer. Um, and that's some sort of emerging, you know, of, of man and machine to some degree. I mean, and there, I got read really interesting studies about how, um, post-orgasmic you know how like post-orgasmically there's an increase in oxytocin yeah um but that you you will get that same oxytocin rush after you come when you're jerking off to porn on the computer which means that you've got some sort of oxytocin bonding with your computer so that's pretty fucked up and scary that explains my why we love Mac so much. <laughs> right, <It's> so <laughs> Mac loyal. <laughs> I'll never <laughs> leave you. I'll right. never leave yeah, oxytocin, you. Oxytocin, like it makes you, you know, you're in my tribe now. My little <laughs> so yeah. I thought I thought that was really interesting, and I also I very much go off on the the pubic hair issue, which I tried to enlist <laughs> and get your response, and you were like Switzerland, which I thought was very. 
Oh, no. Did I lose? We lost you again? Julie. Julie. Fuck. I can hear you. Oh, you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, now you're back. I never left you, Chris. <laughs> I'm right here, darling. You were saying something about pubic hair in Switzerland? Something about pubic hair. <laughs> right. I was saying that you, that when I asked you your opinion about pubic hair, and I thought that you would have sort of a more a more strong opinion about it, but you were kind of Switzerland and neutral. Like, you know, I get I get why some people like it or don't like it. But and my, my point in Moody Bitches is that, again, um, a new normal is being created that, you know, because of internet porn and so many women are shaving and what you see on, the, on your computer that you start to expect women to shave when you see them in, you know, when you actually meet them in real space. And so more and more women are shaving off all their pubic hair. Um, and it's a relatively new phenomenon and it's, you know, it makes me nervous because it's certainly going away from nature and what's natural for us, you know, as furry primates. Um, and also, I mean, the thing that really freaks me out is that people who are choosing to permanently remove their pubic hair with, with laser treatment, um, because this is potentially a trend and, you know, fashions do swing, you know, I mean, people are wearing clogs again, you know, it's like stuff from like the seventies and eighties is totally in fashion again. So it's possible that, you know, a full, Bush is going to be back in style at some point. So, I mean, I would at least encourage people not to permanently remove their pubic hair. Um, but it is, to me, it is a, it's one of these sort of symptoms or signs of us going away from nature and and towards something that's more synthetic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's a it's a strange thing. I know you only have a few minutes left, and I feel like we've we've lost a bunch. You know, trying to reconnect with this the it's technology. True. Uh, the revenge, but um, I, I wanted to ask you about the the reception to the book. I know it's it's been controversial, and on Amazon, it seems that most of the reviews are very positive. Yeah, those Amazon reviews make me pretty happy, actually. Yeah. Because, and I've gotten some emails from people, you know, thank you for writing this book, and I've I bought it for my daughter, I bought it for my friends, you know. So, um, I haven't gotten too many like nasty, hateful emails, so that's good. I think the reception has been really good. I do think that the that it's not selling as well as I thought it would. And it may be that the title really is a little bit more off-putting than mm. I thought. Um, you know, on the, on, you know, in New York City or San Francisco or LA or Chicago, whatever, like the big cities, moody bitches, haha, it's funny, it's tongue in cheek. But it may be that in the middle of the country, it's a little too uh, provocative a title. So um, I didn't, you know, I originally was going to call this book um, Natural Mood, which is about as not provocative <laughs> as you could. It's like, oatmeal for breakfast you yeah. know, natural natural mood yeah, but i mean like a... i was i was tempted to put out two versions you know, i have a i have a friend who did a book where they had two different covers um and two different isbn numbers for the covers and i you know i would love it if we could have a natural mood book and a moody bitches book but the inside is exactly the same um yeah be an interesting the, anyway, study. The, the response is, has been good overall and it's also um i'm really excited and proud to say that it's being translated into 11 languages so far. Wow, that was fast. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's the foreign rights person is just on fire. She's doing a really good job. I, she's my new friend. Yeah. So um, the Dutch version is coming out in a couple of weeks, so I'm taking the family to Amsterdam, which should be interested. My kids have started to ask me about legalized prostitution and hard drugs versus soft drugs and because they're starting to Google Amsterdam and they have questions. So that's going to be interesting taking taking everybody over there 
That's great. Yeah, I love Amsterdam. I've spent yeah. lots of time there. It's one of my favorite places. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, have you been there to the Cannabis Cup competition? I have. I have. <laughs> that was a shot in the dark. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a judge, and I, um, I couldn't really do a good job judging, in my mind, because once you've judged one or two strains, you have trouble remembering what the first two were like when you're judging the third or fourth, and it gets kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and also, when I spoke at the Cannabis Cup, I made a point of asking them to put me on first so that I could be sober when I spoke. But of course, they were running like three hours late. By the time I got on, I was I was altered, and I had the worst dry mouth, and there was no water up on the podium, and I just um, it was not it was not a good day for Julie. It was like a Marco Rubio moment, <laughs> exactly with no water. <laughs> you know, just like my lips stuck up to my gums. <laughs> I mean, it was. Just, it was Lovely. Well, if ever there was a crowd who could understand that. Oh, yeah, you know? definitely. And luckily, it was really before the age of cell phones to some extent. So, oh. <laughs> so um, there's no video record of that. Let's hope. Yeah. I, I looked. I couldn't find anything. So are you working on anything Anything else? Or are you just going to well, sit back and ride the wave here for a while? There's, you know, I'm working on an article about uh, Shire, who makes Adderall um, and Vivance. Um, and this sort of made-up diagnosis called binge eating disorder. Um, Shire, Shire has gotten FDA approval to treat binge eating disorder with high-dose amphetamines. Um, and they did this kind of very weak study where they didn't separate out from placebo until about 11 or 12 weeks of taking this high-dose daily amphetamines. And then they had to log transform the data to have it give it any real heft. But um, the ads for these women, they're saying like, you know, do you sometimes eat more than you want to and then you feel bad about it afterwards, which is sort of like saying like, are you a woman in America? Or a and human. Then they've got, yeah. And then they've got ads, but they're totally targeting women, sir, completely. All the ads are about women. And then the ads for the doctors are saying some of your female patients may be too shy to tell you that they have binge eating disorder. So you need to ask them if they ever eat more than they want to and then they feel bad about it later. Um and, you know, Shire has got Adderall is generic now, but Vivance is brand and they got a patent extension because of binge eating disorder. So they have they have the Vivance brand until like 2023 and they're going to make millions selling amphetamine to women, which, you know, we've already done this in the 50s and 60s. We know what happens when you try to use amphetamine for, you know, dieting and appetite control. Um, so I'm, that's something that I'm working on, but that's just like a little piece for something. I mean, in terms of books, I really want to write about, um, how, how we die, how we live and learn and grow and die. Um, and you know, what it takes for us to really make changes in our behavior. Um, but I'm particularly interested in death and this idea of uh, psychedelic hospice and using psychedelics in the, as part of the death process for people who would like that option. Mm. Um, and I consider cannabis in the in the sort of psychedelic group. Um, Jeremy calls it the people psychedelic, um, but I definitely think that there's a place for cannabis in in hospice and in death and dying care. Yeah. Um, but it's my agent is not that interested. <laughs> Doesn't think she's like death is not really very sexy, and you know she's looking for blockbusters. Well, so. you know what? You should introduce your agent to Caitlin Doty who is a friend of mine who's been on the podcast uh, twice, I think. She just, um, she's a, a mortician uh -huh. who, who just published a book called Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, uh, major bestseller. 
and she's got two TV shows in development. Like, and I'm talking, the book came out three months ago. Okay. Yeah. So I'd be happy to put you in touch with her. Um, but, Please do. But That's the, very interesting. The idea that, that death is not sexy or, or not, um, you know, a relevant and important right. thing that's relevant. happening. I mean, the, the, the society is ready for that. And we've got this huge, uh, you know, cohort, population cohort that is facing that, right? The baby boomers are about to right. burst, you know, and the whole thing. Exactly. It's timely. It's important. I think that's a really good thing. And I'm sure you've seen Atul Gawande's book, Being Definitely. Mortal. Yeah, I read it cover to cover as soon as it came out. And I'm reading something that he just wrote in The New Yorker about over over testing and over-diagnosing, which I think is really important. He's a great writer. It goes down very easy reading him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's. I think that uh, medicine has a complete blind spot in how we deal with death and dying and you know we've got doulas and midwives and obstetricians for bringing life in and we don't have any doctors at all that specialize in escorting people out and what that entails so it's yeah. crazy it is crazy and it's so important and it's so much unnecessary suffering because right. of that yeah yeah well that's fantastic i'm glad to hear you're working on that it that's actually the the last chapter of the book i'm doing is is about that it's you know that's civilized to death the whole the whole right. death thing you know is in in fact that's sort of the central argument that our our fear and refusal to to incorporate death into our civilization um is is sort of what drives the a lot of the ignorance and and the pathology yeah and yeah. the misery. I mean, I, you know, I, I applaud your premise. I mean, I think that you're spot on. So I'm glad that you're writing about death. I think it's really important. And I think that, um, do you know Gabor Mate? Sure. Yeah, he's been on the podcast a few times. Yeah, I think he's working on something in a similar vein. I mean, he's just starting. But, you know, just how our culture is toxic for our bodies, yeah. basically. Yeah, well, I you know that's that's where we're headed. I mean, we're either yeah. going to figure this shit out and and adjust the culture to the reality of our of our evolved nature or we're going to keep trying to force our evolved nature into this the technological uh, yeah. paradigm and and we'll cease to exist. It's, you know, one way or the other. It's it's an interesting moment. Oh, we're going to cease to exist either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As Kafka said, there's hope, but not for us. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, before the goddamn We're all computer. Die. Yeah. <laughs> the end is nigh. Hey, thanks for doing this. I'm sorry for the the weird technological glitches. I'll oh, I'll so stitch fun. it all together and Yeah, make good it luck. Sound you have, you have more, and more work to do now cuz you got to edit this thing down yeah yeah anyway thanks for making time i know you're really busy and uh i i hope people will pick up moody bitches it's it's a good read cassie and i both read it in manuscript yes <laughs> back in the well, day thanks for having me i'm happy to do this again sometime chris yeah okay great thanks thanks julie all righty bye bye he said baby what's a big deal Feel what you wanna feel Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day 
Dance into the ground.